golf kind of requires that. It's, it's like when you get out there, you have to take an in information. You have to find a target. You have to trust however you're swinging it, and you have to execute the shot you're seeing in your mind. So golf is about I will, I will. This is The Tournament Code. As a reminder, before we get started, I want to remind you about the Golfer's Agreement. We do this 100% free. We get on awesome guests, and all we ask is that you subscribe and leave a rating. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or if you're listening to us on YouTube, please like and subscribe. This is the one thing we ask of you. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today, VJ. We know a little bit about uh, your coaching career, but you also had... Uh, some pretty good playing. And as you say on your website, you married up. So that's another accomplishment in life. But before we get to uh, some of your later playing and what you've been up to now, let's start at the beginning. Just tell us how you got into the game of golf. Yeah, I uh, I got in trouble for something when I was a kid. I'm not sure what I got in trouble for. And I had to go to the local golf course, which was Robin Hood Golf Course. I had to go out there and I had to pick up pine cones. And so I had this, I had this metal trash can and uh, – I'm I'm probably, I don't know, nine years old or something. And I'm literally, I, I go see this guy that I got to know a lot uh, later. His name was Fred Davis. And Fred said, you know, hey, you're here. You need to grab this metal trash can. You need to go pick up pine cones. So I walked along dragging a metal trash can and and uh, putting pine cones in it. And um, it was the first time I was ever on a golf course. And I was, it must have been some severe trouble because I was there for a couple of days. And um and then somewhere along the way, you know, you see people hitting stuff. I played tennis. I played soccer. And I was like, well, I'll, even after I wasn't in trouble, I said, I'll go back and see what it's like. That's how I got started. That is awesome. And so when it came to, like, actually playing and getting into more competitive events, how did that kind of blossom for you? It went. It seemed like it went pretty fast. You know, we uh, where uh, Robin Hood Golf Course was a uh, – a, uh, it was a muni. I mean, it, it, it wasn't a great golf course at all. But there were a lot of school teachers, like coaches, school teachers, guys that were coaches and that had sons that played baseball at maybe Millsaps, Mississippi College, these kind of places. And it seemed like that uh, it was enough of a muni and it was cheap enough where those guys would always be out there playing. And so it wasn't long, maybe by 10, 11, 12 years old, that you know, there was a game, right? All these little $2 Nassau's and stuff like this. And, you know, I had somebody to play golf with all summer long because those guys were all coaches and school teachers. And we just, you know, just played a ton of golf. And so it was really a, it, it, it didn't start for me as any type of uh, like goal. It just started for me as like a sport. It was fun to be around other guys. It was a time filler. It was something to do when I went and played tennis, when I went and played soccer, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that's really how it kind of started developing. And then um, let's see, I won the high school state championship in ninth grade. I qualified for the U.S. Junior in 91. I made the cut of the U.S. Junior in 91. Tiger Woods won it. It was a Bay Hill. And then I, uh, I played some state stuff, won some stuff around the state, went down to the Biltmore. It was, um, what was the name of the, the tournament? It was uh, the Orange Bowl at Coral Gables. It was the Orange Bowl. Tiger Woods won that one as well. 
and so I played, you know, so it sort of went to a state level, then it went to a national level. And then I started getting recruited by a few schools and ended up at Southern Miss. That is cool. Tell us kind of how college, what college golf was like and how that shaped your career. College golf was, um, you know, it, it was, uh, it was 10 hours mandatory study hall, uh, freshman year. And then you, you had qualifying all the time and you had 20 hours of practice. So, um, you know, college golf was, it was fun, but it was definitely the first time I ever had to work on my time management skills. It was a lot, you know, it was, it was, it almost seemed overwhelming at times uh, because you had 12 or 15 hours of school and you had the study hall you had to go to and you had, so it was like 50 or 60 hours a week, you know, and I was just kind of hanging on to myself. But I, uh, as a freshman, I played in every event at Southern Miss. Um, and then the coach redshirted me the second year because the team wasn't at Southern Miss. The team, he felt like I was going to be a better player if I redshirted. And then the team, we'd lost all our seniors. We'd lost Stuart Brown and Boyd Cooey. We'd lost all these guys. So um, I redshirted uh, my second year. And, you know, then it became more of more of a time management situation, right? So you're out there trying to work on your game, trying to get better. You're taking a little bit more load in school. and the year after my redshirt year was really my worst year of college because I just stood on the range with, I stood on the range hitting seven irons, essentially, you know, and I practiced my butt off, but, you know, I'd, I'd kind of lost the way I played golf. And then my last couple of years of, of school were good. I was the first guy at Southern Miss to make it to NCAAs as an individual and um, played a lot of good golf down there. So my college career, my college sporting career was really more about learning what not to do than what to do. Um, back then it was, it was, uh, back then it wasn't, it, we, we were not, I would just say, well, I say, I, back then I wasn't very organized. Like, I, you know, I didn't really understand it, it, golf instruction really didn't exist much. You know, you got your tips from a book, right? David Ledbetter was the guy back then. So Nick Faldo was the guy. And so you, you know, you just kind of, you tried and you messed around and you did all these things. And then from a time management perspective, you learn that. So college, college golf to me was really more about learning what not to do. And then after I experienced everything not to do, then I sort of settled in and, and played some good golf, used my, used my potential. What did you kind of have to get back to in order to start playing a lot better golf? I had to play. That's what I had to do. Uh, that was when I, when I, where I grew up and what I grew up doing, we, we didn't have a driving range. We shagged, shagged your own balls, right? And so uh, we used to use this old fairway that was on number 11. And so I grew up playing. Uh, I grew up chipping. I grew up putting. I grew up, as I alluded earlier, with those, with, those, with those coaches, right, and those high school teachers. And so when I got to college, there was a lot more practice, so to speak. I, it kind of, you know, you get, you, you get thrown in the mix of eight or nine, 10, 12 other people, and then, you know, the doors kind of shift. There's probably, by the time you – by the time you start in college and finish in college, there's probably been 15 or 16 people on the team, right? And so everybody's ideas kind of come together and you start saying, well, you know, he hits it pretty well, so I ought to do this or do this or do this. And uh, the more time I spent on the driving range, the worse I got. So the way I turned mine around was I went out to, it was a Van Hook golf course, right? There's a university course there in Hattiesburg. And, and they had a, again, they had a little men's game, right? A little $2 Nassau's. So I just started showing back up and doing that again and it it turned me back around did that second year slash 
third year where you know you went fr- from playing to being on the range to going back to playing again did that influence your does that influence how you coach and how you think about teaching players 1000% 1000% so the the um, you know the the first person that I really taught so to speak was Matt Fast Matt's the assistant coach at A&M now and he he played the web tour for six or seven seasons but Matt was like a little kid and uh, I'd finished school and was playing um, was playing mini tours and so you know you're not gonna play with the team you're still in the you're still in the university town so Matt and his dad were around so I would play with Matt and Michael and Matt was probably 10 or 11 years old so when when um, over the next four or five years things transitioned and I transitioned more into coaching and Matt was like hey I want you to help me out and we spent a lot of time on the golf course because I've always felt like, you know, if, if you go play, if you go play golf and you shoot 72, you do it over 18 holes, right? And so that putt on one or that approach shot on one or that tee shot on one does not look like the putt or the approach or the tee shot on two. And so in my mind, I've always thought that there, if you shoot 72 and you play 18 holes, that's about 90 transitions in your mind. So it's about 90 different transitions where you have to walk in, you have to take in some information. Where's the wind blowing? Where's the, you know, where am I, where am I looking here? What's happening? Find a target, take in your information, find your target. Then you have to kind of see what you're trying to do, feel what you're trying to do, and then walk in and execute those. So those transitions of, of taking in information, finding a target, narrowing it all down, executing what you see and what you're feeling, those transitions a lot of times are lost on the driving range. Right. It's just like we don't take in any information. Yeah. A lot of times you don't have a target. So a lot of times you're just you're really like putting all your focus and your attention on how you're moving or swinging the club. And and then you can kind of get frustrated and just rake another ball over and hit it. Right. And before you know it, you can kind of be practicing in this frustrated mood. Whereas when you go play golf, you can't do that. You know, you have to constantly transition through those through those segments. Absolutely. That. Makes sense. That's something that we've seen a pattern of over time when we're talking with coaches is a lot of the great ones, you know, so only so much can happen in the Bay as far as improving a student's game. And you want to be able to improve your student's game in the Bay, but being able to see it play out and see what's actually happening on the course is where a lot of students can grow. Tell us, talking about your coaching, tell us how you got into coaching after school. You know, I, I, uh, it went. It seemed like it went pretty quick. A Monday qualified for a PGA Tour event. I was out of money, so I was I was playing the Hooters Tour. Do you guys remember the Hooters Tour? I was playing the Hooters Tour, and I had some. The sponsors were kind of like ah, they, they kind of backing their way out. Just your typical mini story, mini tour story, right? And I qualified for a PGA Tour event. I missed a cut in the PGA Tour event, and I had to make a decision. Was I uh, was I going to go? do public relations work at a hospital or wasn't going to start teaching. And there was a, a doctor, his name was Wynn Moore and Wynn bought a little camera, you know, like the little B cameras. And, and uh, there was this little golf course in Hattiesburg. And uh, I, I took a television, like one of those little old school televisions this big. And I put it in a chair and I had these little dry erase markers and I had the camera set up and I'd give lessons for like 25 bucks, 30 bucks, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, I was engaged at the time and I was a good player. 
So being a good player, people wanted to come see you. And it was pretty quick to understand that people didn't know what they were really, people just didn't understand golf. Right. And um, so the transition was really pretty quick. I had to make a decision. I made a decision to kind of start teaching or coaching. And then um, in 2000, so let's say 90, most of 99, I'm playing mini tours. And then by 2000, I'm here at a Waverly where I've been for 23 years. And uh, they needed it. They need somebody they could teach. And they needed somebody they could play. So they just had the women's open here and their staff had kind of phased out. And they needed somebody that could do those two things. And so I was, I, by my resume, I guess, got me in the door there. I could teach and I could play. And uh, I've been here ever since. Yeah, you can obviously still play some golf. And when they're looking at your resume, I know that in, I think, 1997, you were ranked number one in Conference USA, one of the first golfers, at, the first golfer at Southern Miss, I believe, to play in the NCAA championship. And then as an assistant pro and then moving up, you've still been able to play well. How do you balance – a lot of guys who teach say, oh, well, I can't play anymore because I spend all my time teaching. I don't – I touch club once a year. How did you manage to be able to – teach at a high level and play at a pretty high level? Well, er early on, the play-in was a part of the teaching, you know. So early on, you really don't – people don't know who you are. So you go play with the members. The members like, hey, you know, yeah, I'll come get a golf lesson from you. You can actually play golf. And then also playing with college players, right? College players, you'd you'd play with them. they go, oh, you can really play. So maybe I'll listen to you more. Or um, like Vance Veazey was the first guy I ever taught on tour. Advance and I met through a golf tournament that I'd played in. He was like, well, you can play. I'll kind of listen to you. Right. So there was early on, there was this, a part of my job was to make sure that I could play golf. It was, it was sort of my advertising, my marketing, so to speak. Right. And then slowly, just like every other teacher, probably slowly over time, you know, your players, your players really become your advertising or your marketing. So at that point, it sort of starts shifting and changing. And then, I was blessed enough to have, there's a bunch of kids I love, but I was blessed enough here to have uh, four kids, two of them being my own, that really love the game and really wanted to get great at the game. So then a lot of your attention goes into them. So it's just, you know, your game takes a back seat. But early on, I didn't, I wasn't working for Chuck Cook or I wasn't working for a name, right? So a lot of the way I created my business was playing pretty good, good golf and then trying to explain to somebody how they could play really good golf. Over that kind of first half of your career, how much time was spent coaching really good players and then how much time was spent coaching, um, you know, club players who just wanted to basically learn the game? Well, I would teach anybody that would wanted a golf lesson at, then, right? I had some really nice breaks where I, I invented the putting arc. If y'all, you guys have ever heard of the putting arc, I invented the putting arc. And so I was at a PGA tour event and, um, Grant Wade, I was helping Grant Wade with his putting. There was a couple other guys. I was on the putting green and, um, and I saw a guy on the range and his lower body was moving real funny. And, um, I just walked down the range and, and, I, and I knew Vance was easy, but I'd walk down the range and I said, Vance, I said, are you hitting it well? And he said, no. I said, you mind? And he goes, sure. And, uh, and so I, I, I just kind of, I didn't know what I was doing, but I just kind of cleaned up his lower body where it sort of looked right. And, um, and he played real well that week. And then he played real well that week. And that's back when, you know, we actually had newspapers. 
right? So he plays real well, and he says something about me in the newspaper, and then it, it kind of that kind of opens other doors for you to work with better and better players. But for a long time, I've been teaching uh, for twenty four years, I guess. But for a long time, I would teach anybody that wanted a golf lesson. I specialized a lot in junior golf, junior golf around here, and we'll get around to that later. But yeah, I would teach anybody. That is cool. When it came to getting working working with fans, your name getting out there, what are some of the things that you've learned working with those higher level players? A lot of people, I think, think, oh, they got to mostly figure it out or a lot of a lot of PGA Tour players like have it figured out. But obviously in a scenario like that where Vance is doing some funky stuff with his lower body, they don't necessarily have everything, everything figured out, especially day to day or week to week. Tell us what you've kind of learned from that. You know, um, I guess I'll have to kind of zoom out to answer that. But I've learned that the easiest way, talking about tour players, the quickest way, the easiest way for them to lower their scores is going to be uh, wedges, chip and pitching, putting, bunker play. I've learned that their ceiling is greens and regulation, how many greens they hit in regulation. So, you know, greens and reg, is, you get two for one, right? You got to drive it well and hit it well. And then I've learned that with those elite players, like their stratosphere, like how far they can go is really their state of mind, um, how focused they are on their task. And in working with elite players, uh, I've, I've seen that some are, some are really good, chipping, pitching, putting, uh, distance wedge play, bunker game. Um, and they might not be quite as good uh, greens and reg, but, a.k.a. not as good a ball striker. But they have a great attitude, right? They're very focused. And then seeing great players that are great ball strikers, great ball strikers, their attitude and their state of mind is not, not as good as it could be. And then they don't like to work on their chipping, pitching, putting, wedge play. So I guess what I've learned that, that was different than that nine-year-old kid that was out there picking up pine cones is that I, at one point in my life, I thought a, uh, an elite player, an elite PGA Tour player had a kind of everything. And then over the years, I kind of figured out, it's like, well, they, they're just really good at some things and can be helped in other areas. I'd like to go back for a second um, and just say, you know, what was the initial idea behind the putting arc? And... <laughs> What do you think made it have such great success? Yeah, it was. I had a uh, I had a bow and arrow laser on a uh, bow and arrow laser. You can you can slip it to the to the bow and it shoots these little dots out. And then when you let go of the arrow, you know wherever it is, it's, you can help change the sight. Then, but when you took it and you put it on the shaft of a putter, it fit on the shaft of a putter and it made these made this little line like this, right? And so when I was at home. I'm moving the putter at my house uh, here in West Point, and the laser was going straight back and straight through up and down the, the seam of the hardwood, but the putter head was working end to end. And I was like, what's the deal here? And that was when everybody was under the influence of Dave Fells. So everything was straight back, straight through, straight back, straight through. And so that was the inspiration behind it. And um, I was lucky enough that I played golf with a guy that was a Cornell engineer. His son worked for NASA in Huntsville, Alabama, 
And so he understood how to, he understood how to patent a product. His son, his son understood the math behind the, what I was seeing. And, um, and the putting arc was really the first, the first training aid out there that, that taught a stroke that was, you know, essentially 13 degrees off vertical. Right. And so it was the first training aid out there that was a sort of a natural arc. And it was a, it really helped a lot of us as teachers and coaches and it helped a lot of players over the years. And then now you can see all the Vizio mats and all the things that have come out since then, the well putt mats and stuff. And they're all these little different shape arcs and things like that. So it was, it was, uh, that was the inspiration behind it. Yeah, for sure. And I thought I was rich, man. I thought that was it. I thought, man, here we go. Only trouble is not everybody in America worries about how they putt. Right. So <laughs> if I didn't, if I'd have figured out a way to hit it 50 yards further, I might've been rich. I get, I get that. When it comes to talking about that arc, what sort of time, like what sort of, we talked about 13 degrees. How did you determine what the quote, the, not the correct, but maybe, but how did you determine what amount of arc you were going to use on the putting arc? Yeah, it was a projection of a plane from your thoracic spine, T3, uh, down to the sweet spot of the putter. And so that's what a lot of people would understand. A lot of people thought it moved on the plane of the shaft of the putter, right? Which would have been, at, you know, maybe a 20-degree arc. You know, I, let's just assume that most putters are at 70-degree angle, which would have been pretty pretty circular. But the reality is it's because your wrists aren't moving and your elbows aren't moving. The reality is, is you know, how you're bent over, that plane's coming from here straight down to the sweet spot of the putter everything's kind of locked in and you're moving it in one unit, so to speak. Right. And then the other amazing thing, which I think we all knew, I know, I know I figured it out is, you know, I never felt I'm five foot nine and I never felt in my entire life. I never felt short until I walked into a bar in Hattiesburg and I was like, man, where do all these tall people come from? Right. Because, you know, when we start playing golf, you start bending over, everybody gets about the same height, right? You can play golf with a guy that's six, three and, and, and another guy's maybe five, seven, you got there playing golf and everybody's been over. Everybody feels the same height. So what we found was that everything was, everything changed very, very little as far as it, it came to distance to ball, ball position, where you set your posture, your posture alignments. There was just very little, there was very little change in that ellipse. And so that's how, that's how it got settled. Very cool. When it comes to teaching players, we talked kind of about your first half of your career. Now you aren't playing as much and your students do most of the advertising for you. Tell us what that's been like as far as picking up more and more players, maybe what people might say, building more and more of a stable, but also how you're working with players. Because from what you said earlier, it didn't sound, and what we talked about a little bit earlier, you're not necessarily saying, all right, come into my bay, hit seven irons, and we're going to optimize your seven iron launch angle and backspin today. You know what I mean? Well, I, I, I guess we can, we can work that a lot of different ways. When in, in 2014, 14, 15, I had five guys at finals at tour school. Not in California, and um, and two of them later that year, two of them got their tour cards. Jonathan Randolph and Carlos Sainz. Fast had his web card. Uh, Matt Hughes had his web card, and so when when 
now these guys like Jonathan Randolph, I started teaching Randolph when he was 15, 16 years old, right? All through college, he was an All-American at, at Ole Miss. And then now he's a PGA Tour player. And then also Carlos, I uh, started teaching him when he was at at Mississippi State. He was originally from Chicago. And so I taught him all through the mini tours and, and things like that. So when they first got on tour, I had traveled the tour a lot with a guy named Chris Blanks. Um, and Blanks had a Blanks had a nice little run for a couple of years, but that's when I really kind of figured out because of the kids back home. Two of them were my sons, right? Wells Williams, Cohen Trollio, Collins Trollio, and Jacob Blanton. I kind of figured out during that fifteen to sixteen period that you could either you could either spend time on the PGA Tour developing those players. Or you could spend time at home developing players. But for me, I'm not saying this is a universal truth, but for me, there was no, there was no in between. Because if I'm going to spend 60, 65, 70 days on the road with a PGA Tour player, all of those 60, 65, 70 days on the road that I'm spending with them, I am not here to help develop and foster the culture and uh, um, the consistency that a 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kid would would need would need there so you know that's been a constant transition in in what i do i'm 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 fortunate enough that ally mcdonald um t- taught her since she was a kid she's a three-time winner on the lpga tour she still plays the lpga tour chad ramey a kid that i've taught since he was nine ten years old um he's a pga tour player is this is his third year out there and, and and at the same time, I've been fortunate enough that that Cohen Trollio was a USGA semifinalist, USGA finalist. Uh, Wells is a two-time USGA semifinalist. Um, so I've I've been fortunate enough that that I've I've been able to find sort of a balance in that world. And a lot of it's because of the players I teach, the players I coach. You know, they they take ownership of it, so I don't travel as much on tour with them. And then uh, some of the junior players also the same way. It's a, they take ownership of it, and so I can kind of split my time a little bit and do that. So that's been a uh, that's been a whirlwind of that. What I just explained there has been sort of a whirlwind of of just looking at myself and seeing where where my passion sets and where I feel like I can do the best work for an individual. Yeah, I believe. Uh... So the first time I heard of you was, I believe, in 2018 when your son Cohen advanced to the semifinals at the U.S. Amateur at Pinehurst, and you were on the bag, Caddy. And so I, w- I was watching you guys on TV. Obviously, a really cool story. And he got all the way to the Final Four when he how was he 15 or 16 at the time? He was, uh, I think, he was probably 16, 17, 16. maybe 17, 16, 17. Yeah, yeah. so really cool story, but. Um, how did you get him into the game of golf and how did you start, you know, that coaching when he was younger? Yeah. Him and his brother, um, we'd, we'd, I just load him up in the golf cart, right? <laughs> you know, Sunday afternoon, just put him in the golf cart. One would sit, I'd put Collins in the back basket and Cohen would sit on the or vice versa. And we'd just go out here and play a few holes. And, um, and again, again, it's, it, it, you know, the, the culture with uh, with Jonathan Randolph and with Allie and with Chad and with Matt Fast and with Carlon Sainz and Jamie Marshall and Chris Blanks and Jim Gallagher was uh, uh, kind of coached him towards the latter part of of his forties and into his fifties. 
and you know all these kind of people around and those little kids are like you know they think it's the coolest thing in the world right and so um so that was a, you know that's how that that whole culture kind of started happening and taking place but it wasn't it was no it, it was it was it was just something i did and um you know i always felt like there were probably two really safe places for kids the first being church and the second being a golf course because at a golf course you still have to stop and and you have to go up to mr smith or dr miles you know they're gonna stop you and say something to you and you have to fix your hat and say yes sir and shake their hand so I, th- I felt like I felt like golf was just a uh, it was it was just an extension of who the Trollios are, right? We're going to do it, even if we're not good at it. We're still, we're still going still to go do it. Something that stuck out to me when I was watching that uh, tournament, and the announcers kept talking about it. It may seem small to somebody who's not that knowledgeable about the game, but uh, you didn't let him carry a sixty degree at the time. Um, and that to me, that was a sign that, you know, he had good coaching. My coach, when I was growing up, didn't let me carry a 60 degree for a while. And I think it helped me out. Um, is that something that you do with all your younger players? Yeah. You know, it's just when it comes to, uh, pitching a golf ball, um, ball, ball speed is so important to understand and learn ball speed. So to, it, you know, uh, elite level players, we always refer to it as like a slow ball is a happy ball. Right, because the greens are so firm, everything's so fast. So when you give a kid a pitching wedge and you're like, hey, man, go practice your bunker game, go practice your pitching, go practice your chipping, they naturally begin to develop these motions that are more what what I guess the three of us just would refer to it as more chest dominant, right? They aren't accumulating a bunch of angles and throwing stuff fast. They're like they're figuring out how to open the face enough and kind of create this motion through the ball this way. And so, yes, to this day, um, you know, like 56 is plenty, you know, it's plenty. Um, And then if you can vote, then get you a 58, right? Get you a 60. But before you can vote, like I'd way prefer a kid to grow up with a 54 degree than a 60 degree. And and I don't think that's – like your coach said to you, I think it's just – it's a part of observation. I mean, the kids that grow up with 60 degrees – they learn to like set all these crazy angles and start slamming everything in there, get a lot of extra arm speed. They get all these different accumulators happening in their chest. It sits there. And it's just, it's, it's, it's not a way to create a, a slow ball, happy ball, right? It's not a great way to create a consistent ball speed uh, around the greens. So when players get that 60 degree, when that gets put in their bag, they've already developed kind of the, underlying skills to be able to take, I wouldn't say necessarily take advantage of it, but they've, they've developed the underlying fundamentals to where they can do it. It's like, it's maybe close to shooting, being able to shoot well inside the arc before you're stepping out and shooting three pointers ahead of your time. Sure. Absolutely. You go in further than that though. If you, if you just go back to greens regulation, right. If you just go back to GIRs, which is going to be a ceiling for a player, right. Well, if you if you kind of counted how many balls finished within 20 yards of the green, like through a 72-hole event, well, a lot of these elite little juniors are, if you count the green plus 20 yards over a, let's just say a 54-hole event, they would hit 54 shots up there, right? So there's, they, might, they might only hit 
42 greens, but those other 13 greens, they're missing by one yard, two yards, three yards, four yards, five yards. So when they, when they know that their 54 degree does not go straight up in the air, they're way less likely to short side themselves. They're way more, they're much more likely to think of the pin being a destination rather than a target. Right. Because if you hit it over the back of a short side of green and you have a 54 degree, it's like, <laughs> you can't get it up and down. Right. So, um, just playing off your point there, it's, I think it, it, it not only does it build, uh, good ball speed around the greens, good, good technical habits, good fundamental habits, if you will, but it also kind of starts leaking itself into the course strategy where, uh, players leave themselves better leaves in their misses. Would you make the same recommendation? Let's say I'm an adult who did, let's say I didn't grow up playing golf. And so I'm an adult. I got a six, I got a 60 degree. I got a 56. Would you, as far as practicing for me as an adult, would you recommend the same thing for time being, or at least in practice? What, how would you recommend that for someone who's let's call them a 10 handicap or something at that level? Or even if I'm in a, even if I'm an adult who's pretty solid, but short game isn't my strength. Sure. If you're a 10 handicap, the quickest way for you to lower your scores is going to be improvement in your putting, your chipping, your pitching, your wedge play, bucker game. You know, a lot of your putting is going to be speed. And then a, a lot of around the greens, you've got to find a way to consistently hit a ball at a very similar speed. So uh, I would think that if you could do that with a 60, roll with it, right? But if not, I would kind of start channeling myself back up. Uh, most of the stuff I do around here is 56, 54, things like that, right? Learning to learning to hit bunker shots with eight irons, learning to hit bunker shots with nine irons, learning to hit bunker shots with pitching wedges, these kind of things, right? Because most people, what I've noticed over the years is most people shut the face. They're much more likely to shut the face. And when you get into that 10 handicap world, uh, a lot of them will have a 60 degree, but they'll have it closed in, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? So they're actually like, turn it down to less loft. So it's like, hey, let's reverse this and, and, and grab something with a little less loft. And then you start going, oh, I need to go this way with it more. What's kind of like the um, underlying reason that low ball speed's good with short game? It, you know, it's it's tough to spin a golf ball, pitching it, chipping it. it you know, I mean, you'll see uh, five, 10 yard chip shots. It's just it's really hard. I mean, a lot of those shots come off with less spin than a driver, right? I mean, a lot of them are out there like 12, 1800, 2000 RPMs. So you have to learn to either control the ball speed or control the spin. Obviously, uh, there's some things you can do if you take a 60 and you get it going more up and down a vertical plane and have the face more open. You can increase that spin loft so you can increase that spin. But what I see people use all the time we're still speaking on this 10 handicap, these kids growing up, right? What I generally see them using more often is control of a ball speed, right? Every golf ball that anybody has ever hit into a green has gone bounce, bounce, roll. Now it might go bounce, bounce, check, right? Bounce, bounce, check, and then roll a little bit, or it might go bounce, check, and then roll a little bit. But every ball, when you hit a pitch shot, it bounces, it bounces again, and then it releases. None of them are coming back to us. So, being able to control that ball speed as it lands 
and it does that that checking, if you will, on the green and whatever that green is, being able to control that ball speed of its landing area and the and the ball speed of it rolling out, those are are the things that I've seen great pitchers and chippers be able to do. So that would be the the reason why that ball speed is more important in my world than controlling spin. If I come to you for a lesson and let's say we've worked together at least a little, little bit. So, so we're not necessarily having diagnose, having to diagnose everything. Walk me through kind of how you structure your lessons with players to make sure they're getting better with, let's say it's full swing, getting better on their full swing, but not doing it in a vacuum. Yeah. There's three, there's three things that I, that I do. Uh, I get on the golf course with all my clients, I watch all my clients practice and I give all my clients private lessons. And so if somebody came to me for a golf lesson, they would experience something in that neighborhood. They would experience getting on the golf course and and then taking the information we have on the golf course, trying to build that golf course IQ, and at the same time working privately and then making sure that they can practice these things, right? That's that's my that's my typical model. I I I, uh, I teach a certain number of people every year and try not to take any more than that number so that I can apply that to everybody I coach and then, but I still have time in my schedule for one offs. You know, you still have members that just want to fix something or you still have people that want to drop in just for things. But, um, but if I coach you and you're in my program, I'm going to get on the golf course with you. I'm going to watch you practice and I'm going to give you private lessons. When it comes to watching players play, what are you looking for and what differences are you noticing between when they're playing and when they're practicing? Wow. Yeah, that's crazy. You know, it, it, and I, and I think we've all been guilty of this. So, so you know, we as coaches, teachers, but you can be in a bay with somebody working on something reasonably technical, and and then you can go play golf with them, and you can notice that their ball position with their drivers back and they're aimed to the right, right? It's like what, like what, like what's the point, you know? So the so on a golf course, what we're looking at is we're looking at the decisions they they're making. Right. And, and I guess there's a few decisions that, that you can make. Um, one is I won't. One is I can't. One is I'd like to try it, but it's hard. One is I'll try it. One is I can. And then one is I will. Right. And so on the golf course, we're looking for I will, right? You know, so that so the golf kind of requires that. It's it's like when you get out there, you have to take an in information, you have to find a target, you have to trust however you're swinging it, and you have to execute the shot you're seeing in your mind. So golf is about I will, I will, I will do this, I will commit to this, I will see that, I will hit my ball there, I will do this. I it's a tricky downhill little eight footer. I'd love to make birdie, but I will not hit it too hard, right? I will hit it with good speed and let it drip in. And um, and I think it's so important for that because a lot of times in, in golf lessons, so to speak, a lot of people get more into, you know, it feels funny, right? I'll try it, but, you know, that I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, you know. And so to get better at the game of golf, you have to look at yourself. You have to make a lot of decisions on, I will do this. I, 
I will change my grip. I will change my ball position. I will work on my setup. I will work on moving better. And so to me, that's really the, the thing I see the most about golf versus golf instruction. And if, and if I just give people golf lessons, they sort of decide what they will and won't do. But if I put them on the golf course, then the golf course and golf kind of decides what they will and won't do, right? And so I think it's a much better way to, to develop as a player is, is understanding the game and the things that you have to do out there, the things that you will do, and then coming back and going, okay, well, how does this, this right arm or this grip or left arm or how I move, how does this apply to what is needed on the course? And so when you get those synergies happening, then it can really, it can really develop. So, you, you know, you clearly have a very um, good grasp on the technical side of the game, but I think more so than most swing coaches, you have a really good grasp on the uh, mental and psychological aspect of the game. Have you ever worked with any sports psychologists or um, people like that? And how have you, have you gotten to that point? Yeah, I've been around a lot of great ones. Um, Lanny Basham was really great. Dr. Coop, I got to spend some time with Dr. Coop, which is just like amazing. And then I've been around a lot of good players that also work with a lot of sport, a lot of good sports psych, right? And then, you know, you take that information, then you also take you coming from a playing background. And the thing we alluded to earlier about all those different transitions that you go to, that you go through as you play. And you just start to understand that your state of mind is so important. State of mind is so important. The athlete trusting me, right? Is it, that's nothing more than state of mind, right? You, you have all this video equipment and all these force plates and these things. So you, you do your best to explain to the student why they would change it, right? You have track man, you have all this stuff going. But at the end of the day, it's a, it's a relationship, right? I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I teach, I, I teach people. I don't know that I teach golf all the time, right? So, I, and so, so every person's a little different and you, and, and I have to trust them and they have to trust me. I have to hold myself accountable that I'll do my best for them. And they have to hold their self accountable that they'll do the best for themselves. And so, you know, you just get into the nature of even what you guys do or what I do or what anybody does. And, you know, life's pretty mental. It's pretty state of mind oriented. Right. And, um, and so I think it's a, it's a, as I, as I referred to earlier, I think it's the stratosphere of what can be accomplished is uh, that state of mind that you bring to bring to work every day, so to speak, right. Bring to school every day, bring to, uh, bring to the sport every day. 100%. And I think talking about state of mind, that's a good point to come to our last question, uh, which we ask every guest. And for you, it's going to be a two-parter kind of going to state of mind. It's if you could go back to yourself as a junior golfer and tell yourself just one thing, what would that one thing be? And because you coach junior golfers, if you could tell a junior golfer just one thing, what would that one thing be? Too prone, huh? Too prone. Mm -hmm. If I could go back and tell myself one thing, it would be to stay patient. Just, just to stay patient. If I could tell a junior golfer one thing, I would be, I would say ownership. You know, um, that was the, the, the downside, um, the downside of when I grew up in golf is that there were no parents on the golf course. 
there were no coaches, no teachers, especially in Mississippi, right? There was some in Houston. There was some in Miami. There was some in, uh, in, in Florida. There was some in the Midwest, uh, California, but there was no golf. There was no world-class golf instruction being done in Mississippi. So if you have no parents, no coaching, no instruction, it's just you and a golf ball and how you score and you want to be good at it, then that creates a lot of ownership. Maybe a lack of patience, but a lot of ownership. And, you know, you, you fast forward now and we here at Old Waverly, I've always tried to create a culture for these junior golfers to come into and when they come in, you know, Tim Yelverton does short game work here. He travels the tour a lot. But he can answer just about anything in 20 minutes. He can pretty much answer anything probably have when it comes to putting or chipping. And and then um, I'm over here doing my chipping and my playing and my ball striking stuff. So we can answer all these questions. But a lot of times that those answers come so quick that the kids don't own it. So, you know, I would for these for, for this next generation of junior golfers, I think ownership is going to be a big part of it, right? Passion, ownership, incentives, fun, but owner, ownership is going to be a, a big part of what they do because they, they're the ones that have to own it. So that's what I would say. VJ, be more patient. Kiddo, if you want to be great, own it, right? Own it. Excellent. Well, that is perfect. Thank you for joining us. As far as where people can find you on social media, if you got an extra room for a lesson where people can try to book that, why don't you let, why don't you let them know? You know, I don't even know what I am. I'm on Instagram, VJ Trollio. You aren't going to find too many. I have no idea what it is. And then you can just uh, look at Old Waverly Golf Club, right? Just go in there and look at it and click on coaches and you kind of figure out who I am. Excellent. Be sure to check out VJ on social media. And if you're trying to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at the tournament code and on Twitter at tournament code also if you're listening to us at this point please subscribe and leave a rating or like and subscribe this helps us get our message out to more people as always we appreciate you listening to us and look forward to diving in deeper what it takes to play elite tournament golf 